Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors writing in a wide variety of fields. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly, and I'm speaking today with Andrewian, Emmy and Peabody Award-winning writer, producer, and director, who was the wife of renowned scientist and science educator Carl Sagan, and who has masterminded the production of audiobooks of his nonfiction by Brilliance Audio, the sponsor of today's podcast. Hi, Anne. Hi, Lenny. How are you? I'm all right. So the Library of Congress actually named Cosmos as one of the 88 books that shaped America, but am I correct in understanding that it didn't start life as a book? That's right, Lenny. It started as a companion to the television series, and uh, we were working on the book as Carl and astronomer Steve Soder and I were writing the series, and so it was... Uh, one of the great thrills of my life and a, a source of huge regret that I could never tell Carl that this book that uh, really was written on the fly as a companion to a TV series was chosen by the Library of Congress as one of the 88 books, as you just said, that made America, along with the Federalist Papers and uh, Mark Twain and uh, Benjamin Franklin and Moby Dick. I mean, these are the masterpieces of American civilization, and uh, I'm so thrilled that Carl's work is a part of it. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of Cosmos? We'll get to the others as well, but Cosmos from book to audiobook. Well, it was written on the fly during the incredibly hectic but thrilling feast of ideas that was the creation of a TV series. The original series was filmed in some 60 locations on Earth, as well as in a studio in Los Angeles. As we traveled around the world, we were frantically writing the book at night. Carl, of course, was the lead author. But much of, of the language and much of the storytelling that distinguished the television series are present in the book, and you can hear Carl's voice. Uh, even when others are reading, and they're doing a beautiful job, even when others are reading his words and our words. And what were your goals in terms of translating these books into audiobooks? Well, I wanted a new audience to understand what a prophetic force in our civilization Carl Sagan has been. And it's not as if he's forgotten. I, I must say that I think in some ways he's more beloved by a wider group of people around the planet than ever before. Part of that's because of the success of the original series and the success of Cosmos, the space-time odyssey, which has brought so many new brains and eyes and ears to his work, but also because of the success of Pale Blue Dot, and uh, I think that very moving passage about our true circumstances in the vastness of the universe has become a kind of, what's the right word, uh, just a trope for people everywhere on the planet. I think the Internet has, has made Carl's audience that much larger. And so I wanted the books to be available in as many ways as they could be. And apart from Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was inspired uh, to his career in science by a meeting with your husband as a teenager, 
The audiobooks have an all-star roster of acting talent, including LeVar Burton, Carrie Elways, Seth MacFarlane. How do they come involved? Is that something that you uh, you approach them directly? Yes, I did approach them directly. Um, Seth MacFarlane has been my champion for much of the last seven, eight years. And if it were not for him, there would not have been a Cosmos, a second Cosmos series. So uh, he is a, a, a partner, both uh, in terms of producing and vetting, editing each and every one of the, every word in all of this 13 scripts, but as well as an advocate for science and reason. And so uh, we all know what a great voice he has, how versatile it is. And so he was one of the first people I thought of uh, about reading, for instance, the baloney detection kit passage in the demon haunted world, which is uh, a kind of a, a machine for telling when you're being lied to, which actually seems to me more critically needed at this moment than we've ever, than ever before. So he was a natural choice. LeVar Burton, uh, I've been developing a project with him for the last year. And uh, I, I admired him ever since Roots and throughout his, his wonderful career and uh, thought that he would be a great voice to connect with the audience, which was the only thing that Carl Sagan was about, was telling the truth and then connecting with people who had no idea, no previous inclination towards science, but uh, who he knew would have become totally engaged if they had the opportunity. And what surprised you the most about the entire process of changing these printed books into audiobooks? Well, the thing that surprised me the most was how relevant to our current situation books that were written 10, 20, 30 years ago have remained. I mean, I'm so proud of the fact that Carl had been sounding the alarm on climate change, uh, going back to the original cosmos and before. So... You know, I think what's so amazing about Carl is that people always used to say that he was so highly speculative. And that's kind of a a minor misdemeanor among scientists. But what's what makes me so proud is that all these decades later, he has been proven true in his speculations about Venus, about Mars, about Earth and also about exoplanets and the search for life elsewhere, he would be right at home in the science of this moment, even though he died 20 years ago. And so I guess the thing that really means the most to me is how relevant, timely, and still true everything he wrote and we wrote together still is. So you mentioned writing together. Which of these books are ones that you co-authored with Carl Sagan? I guess uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, Comet, uh, Murmurs of Earth. Am I missing any? Uh, yes, I have some uh, chapters in uh, Billions and Billions and in The Demon Haunted World. 
How long did the whole process from the start of the idea of making these into audiobooks until the finished product take? Oh, uh, not that long. Certainly less than a year. The, uh, the people from Brilliance approached me, and I immediately knew that they were heads and shoulders uh, above all of the previous overtures I'd received during the, during the last 20 years. They understood the urgent need for a Carl Sagan library, and they were willing to commit the resources and, uh, and the bandwidth and the energy to make it happen. And this is, I, this has been a tremendous relationship. Really excited that we've been able to do this together. And in terms of adapting the books for audio, in terms of the crafting of the scripts, uh, did any of the volumes present more challenges than others? And if so, why? You know, I don't, uh, I don't feel that they did. You know, sometimes words are made to happen inside your head. Some sentences are written for the eye to see on the page. And uh, there were moments where we had those concerns. But uh, apart from that, you know, there wasn't that much editing to do. So many of our listeners, I think, are most familiar with Cosmos. I'm wondering for the for the other audiobooks whether you might be able to just give a sentence or two sort of summary about what the themes are, uh, and then I'll sort of build to a related question. So what is Murmurs of Earth about? Murmurs of Earth is an account written by the protagonists of the making of the NASA Voyager interstellar message. These are two iconic golden disks affixed to each of the two Voyager spacecraft launched in 1977, moving at 40,000 miles an hour ever since. The most distant objects that human hands have ever touched, and I was, it was my honor to be the creative director of the project and to work with half a dozen other people to create a message, a complex message of the world's music from its greatest traditions of greetings in 59 human languages and one whale language of more than a hundred images of life on earth and a sound essay, which includes the sounds of earth that you might think of the thunder, the bird song, the crickets, but also a mother's first kiss to her newborn baby uh, and her first words to that baby and uh, the brain waves and heart sounds and rapid eye movement and every single signal being sent out by a young woman newly fallen, madly in love. All of that was compressed into sound and put on this record with the hope that someday during the course of the shelf life of the record, which is one to five billion years, one to five thousand million years, that uh, spacefaring extraterrestrials would reel it in 
and be able to play the record. And uh, this is the story of what we included and why we included. That's a long answer, but it's very dear to my heart. And of course, this August, September will be the 40th anniversary of the launching of Voyager, both Voyager spacecraft. They completed the epic first reconnaissance of the solar system. And now they're on their way to travel the Milky Way galaxy well beyond anything that we've ever made. Thank you. And could you talk just a little bit about Broca's Brain? Yes, Broca's Brain was inspired by um, a walk through a Paris museum in 1981. And it was... um, Tremendous experience to hold in our hands the brain of the scientist who first isolated a single part of the brain and identified it with a, with a single intellectual function. So Broca's brain is the story of the, uh, the study of human intelligence and essays on on the brain and what it's like to be human. And you made a reference before to uh, The Demon Haunted World. What's that book about? The Demon Haunted World has a subtitle, Science as a Candle in the Darkness. And the notion at the heart of it is that we have created an error-correcting mechanism called science, which has some basic rules. And these rules are applicable to absolutely everything. They are a mechanism for ferreting out lies and deception. And that's why science is so awesomely powerful. That's why scientists can take you, science can take you from Galileo's first look through a telescope to sending spacecraft beyond the solar system and to rendezvousing with the outermost planets and to seeing across the universe to uh, almost the beginning of the Big Bang. Science can do that in a mere 400 years. And the question is, why is it so powerful? It's because all it is about is ferreting out the lies that we tell each other, that we tell ourselves. We are terrible liars. And so it was Carl's inspiration to gather together all of the tools that humans have evolved in order to protect ourselves from those who would deceive us. And so it's an empowering book that, uh, that I think has lessons that are useful in absolutely every sphere of human life. Could you tell us a little bit about Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors? Yes, uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors was a project that we began during the worst days of the nuclear arms race. And the idea was we wanted to know if there was just something wrong with us as a species that made us bring our sickness and death everywhere we went. We wanted to know if we were doomed. We wanted to know if this kind of weird uh, imperative to rush headlong to destruction was somehow programmed into 
human beings and was a, a, the evolutionary baggage from our earlier history as non-human primates. And we uh, made a pledge to each other that we would follow the research wherever it led. And we ended up writing the most optimistic book uh, because we realized that it wasn't as if we were doomed. It was that civilizations create a kind of template in which they encourage certain qualities and traits and tamp down others. And we saw a light at the end of the tunnel of how we could become the species we must become if we are going to venture forward into the cosmos and travel to the stars. And could you talk briefly about a path where no man thought nuclear winter and the end of the arms race? Yes, that is uh, Carl's book in collaboration with Richard Turco, a fellow scientist. And it was, it's the book about their dawning understanding with their colleagues that a nuclear exchange would have long-term climatic effects, which in the end might be a graver danger to us than the immediate effects of the blast. I'm very proud and happy to say that their research about nuclear winter has been supported by researchers working over the decades with far more sophisticated modeling capabilities. And uh, so this is a, a path where No Man Thought is a historic book because it's the first inkling of that the dangers of nuclear war, which no one had anticipated, Department of Defense, with all of the trillions of dollars that it spent on getting ready for nuclear war, had somehow never managed to investigate what the long-term consequences would be. And Carl and Richard Turco and their colleagues did just that without uh, any other incentive except protecting our species. And could you say a few words about Comet? Comet was a joy to write. We wrote Comet in anticipation of the 1985-86 apparition of Halley's Comet. And it's the history and lore associated with comets. It's the science of comets. Again, Carl, as a scientist, made predictions about comets that have been completely borne out by science conducted since. So it's a kind of, you know, there's so much superstition associated with the appearance of a comet in the sky. This seems to be a transcultural phenomenon that a new star in the sky meant the fall of kings and war and famine and pestilence. And so this is a kind of exploration uh, of our relationship to comets and the real story of how comets are made and why they appear in our skies, which is riveting. Just a couple more. Uh, Dragons of Eden, speculations on the evolution of human intelligence. Carl was fearlessly interdisciplinary and... Uh, in 1977, he published this book, 
The Dragons of Eden, which was about the evolution of human intelligence. And he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for writing this book. Not many astronomers would dare to venture into that territory, but as I say, he was fearless. And uh, The Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space? Pale Blue Dot is, in my view, a masterpiece. It is a vision of what we as a species can do if we choose life, if we play our cards right, if we take what the climate scientists are telling us to heart and create the kind of future for our children and grandchildren that's worthy of them. And it is just every chapter of Pale Blue Dot is uh, just a tremendous soaring, soulful, but also scientific uh, exploration of the nature of the solar system and beyond. It anticipates the huge scientific field of the study of exoplanets and the search for life elsewhere. It's ahead of its time in dozens of ways, but it also contains the soliloquy about the pale blue dot, the one that says, that begins, that's us. And that pale blue dot is the image, the one pixel earth that was taken by Voyager again, out by Neptune, looking homeward and seeing the earth not as the Apollo frame-filling Earth that was still somehow the center of the universe, but instead as the Earth as a single pixel suspended in a sunbeam for a brief moment, seen from out by Neptune. It really is uh, a masterpiece, and it's as powerful now as it was when it was written. And your husband's final book was Billions and Billions, Thoughts on Life and Death at the Brink of the Millennium. Billions and Billions is so moving to me because here was Carl confronting his own death with his characteristic fearlessness, not taking refuge in the comforting thought that we would see each other again or that he was going to a better place but feeling the, the need, the imperative to once again frame our situation, our true circumstances in this vast cosmic arena. And uh, he never got to complete the book. One of the last chapters, if not the last, is in the Valley of the Shadow about his two-year battle with a disease that required three bone marrow transplants and a tremendous amount of courage on his part. And tragically, because it was incomplete, I got to write the last chapter, which is about how our family, how Carl and I met, how our family began, and how it grew with our children and his children, and how we dealt with his death and did our best to survive it. It's the most personal of the book. Well, 
and I wanted to thank you for your time today and also for your work as a science educator and keeping your husband's spirits and ideas alive for a new generation and in this new format. Uh, the audiobooks we discussed today are from Brilliance Audio, the sponsor of today's podcast. This has been Lenny Picker for PW's Litcast. Please join us again for our next episode.